Good morning, church. Sorry. Uh, before I start, I, I just want to share one thing uh, with everyone. Um, when uh, a couple of months ago, when this opportunity for me to uh, fill in at Hillside occurred, um, one of the first things I did was I approached our elders and asked them for uh, their prayer and their wisdom. Um, and, and I think it says a lot about our eldership that these were the concerns that were raised. There was one elder who was concerned about me and said, you know, are you able to do this with all the other stuff you have on, going on? Um, there was another one of our elders whose concern with, uh, was with what might be going on in that church. You know, is their pastor in trouble? Is there something that we can do? Uh, and I think that speaks a lot for who the elders are in this church. Uh, there was another elder who mumbled something about blessed subtraction, and I don't recall what all that was about. But anyway, um, it really does, though, and it, it speaks a lot about who these men are and, and you know, the love that they bring to, uh, uh, you know, to this church, the love that they have for God. Please keep that in mind. I would, um, during the, I'll be away for 14 weeks. Um, I still will be here for things like Sunday night and things like that. But I would certainly covet uh, your prayers during that time. And I'll miss you all. When, uh, when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old, uh, my dad introduced me to one of his heroes, a guy named Eddie Rickenbacker. And he became one of my heroes as well. Let me ask you, is there anyone here who's familiar with this great American? I mean, Eddie Rickenbacker, not my dad, but yeah. So some of you guys have heard him. He was, he was truly an amazing guy. And let me just tell you a little bit about him. Um, after his father's death, when Eddie was just 12, he quit school to support his family. And uh, you know, he became a skilled automobile mechanic, and he became a self-taught engineer. And this was in you know, the birth of the automobile industry. Um, he became a race car driver, and he was uh, known for his fearlessness behind the wheel. When World War I came, he enlisted uh, and turned his auto mechanic skills into aircraft mechanic skills. And he taught himself to fly so that he could uh, uh, test the aircraft that he had repaired. And after being recognized by his superiors for his superior flight skills, he became a fighter pilot. And in fact, Eddie Rickenbacker was the most successful flying ace in World War I. He was credited with 26 aerial victories. Uh, after the war, he went on to actually own the Indy 500. Uh, he created his own automobile company. Has anybody ever seen a Rickenbacker automobile? They were really kind of cool cars. Uh, he was the CEO of Eastern Airlines from 1952 to 1959. And because of his contribution to civilian air travel, uh, we today, we today can be any place in the world in 24 hours. This was a great man and a great American. But the story through which uh, I came to make Eddie Rickenbacker one of my childhood heroes came from a chapter in his life uh, described in what's my favorite book of ever, and it was titled, We Thought We Heard the Angels Sing. Let me just tell you a little bit about that. Um, in October of 1942, that was the beginning of the US involvement in World War II, Rickenbacker had been sent to inspect the air bases in the Pacific Theater. And while on the way to a refueling depot on Canton Island, which is in uh, the Central Pacific, there was a, a, a navigation equipment failure. 
And what happened was the crew of the plane that he was flying in, uh, they overshot their intended destination by hundreds of miles. Ultimately, they ran out of fuel. And as they searched, to, you know, they ran out of their fuels. They were flying a grid pattern to, to uh, search for their destination. And they were forced to ditch the aircraft in the ocean. In the crash, every member of the crew, all eight of them, uh, suffered some injury. Uh, and it's interesting to note that Rickenbacker himself was still recovering from injuries that he suffered in a near-fatal crash a year before. When they exited the airplane, they had three oranges, no water, and no radio. There were eight men in three small inflatable rafts floating somewhere across the vast Pacific. It was a desperate and it was a forlorn situation. After 21 days floating on those rafts, seven of the eight men were rescued. One died. The crew was led and inspired by Rickenbacker, and they endured. Um, and it's interesting as the story, and I would really encourage anyone who has a heart to, to read this book, but as uh, there was one member of the crew who, when he left the aircraft, he had a waterproof Bible, uh, Gideon's Bible, in his pocket. And the crew got into this habit. Each morning, what they would do is they would pull the three rafts together, and they would read scripture and pray. And it's, nice, it's important to note that only one of them was a man who was particularly uh, um, strong in his faith. But they found inspiration and, and strength to go on through verses like the 23rd Psalm and through verses like Luke 12, 29. And God sustained them in miraculous ways. And let me just give you one example. For example, on day seven, they were three days after they had finished the oranges. The men prayed for God's provision. And the scripture that they opened to and read that day was Luke 12, 29. It says, and do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your father knows that you need these things, but seek the kingdom of God, and these things shall be added to you. Almost immediately after reading the scripture that references God's provision of food and the other necessities for preserving life, a lone seagull landed on Rickenbacker's head. Can you imagine, just imagine that moment um, for Rickenbacker and his companions. You know, these men are starving to death. In seven days, they had three oranges. That was all they had to eat. And they pray. They read this scripture out of Luke. And this seagull lands on Rickenbacker's head. And the book goes on to describe how he slowly reached up and he grabbed that bird. Um, they, they divided this tiny bird amongst the eight of them. They ate it raw, right? They had no fire. They're floating in a, on, on these rafts. But God provided winged manna and sustained the crew for three more days. And then the parts of the bird that, that they couldn't eat, that they didn't eat, provided bait so that they could fish, right? Throughout this uh, epic journey, God sent them rain at exactly the right times. And ultimately, when they came to the end of themselves, God sent them rescuers. Now, I may be wrong. But I'm willing to say that there is no one here who has ever endured what these men endured during 21 days adrift in the Pacific Ocean with only three oranges to serve as rations. But I'm also pretty sure that each of you has faced a challenge that has pushed you to the limit of your endurance. 
And I want you, I want to challenge you right now to kind of reflect upon those life experiences. I mean, what was the most stressful thing that you ever endured? You know, maybe it was a, a, a loved one's illness or, or a health challenge that you yourself have faced. Um, maybe it was a, in a crucial moment, like maybe, you know, your wife was uh, in, the, in the process of delivering your fifth child. Maybe you lost your job and you uh, found yourself unable to meet financial obligations. Maybe you were betrayed by a loved one or maybe your marriage unexpectedly blew up. Maybe you exhibited horrible judgment in a crucial moment that you broke the law and you found yourself in the justice system. You know, maybe you know what it's like to be incarcerated. The question I'm asking you is this. Have you ever, have circumstances ever put you in a situation in which you were expected to do more than you thought you could ever possibly do? Have you ever thought that you had come to that point where you were at the end of your ability? I mean, how many times have you felt that you reached the limit of your endurance? How many times have you felt that I have done all that I can do and I can do no more. My guess again is that there is not one of us, not one amongst us who has not had that experience. But friends, if there is, if somewhere there is, if in, sitting in, in, in the pews today, there is someone who can say that they have never experienced that, that they have led that kind of charmed life, let me assure you of this, at some point you will be pushed to the limits of your endurance. I mean, I need to say that again. It is a certainty that you will be pushed to the limits of your endurance at some point. It will happen. Well, this morning, I would like to share an encouragement from God's word. And it is a recounting of an event in Peter's life. And in this account, uh, Peter was pushed to the end of his ability to endure. And it is a moment in history, and this moment in history reveals God's nature, it reveals the nature of our struggles, and it points to the necessity to understand the difference. And I hope that you're going to find this as encouraging as I do. But let us pray. Heavenly Father, we live in difficult times. We, we see a world around us that is just breaking down and crumbling we see a world around us in which we struggle to make sense. But yet, Lord, we know that you are sovereign. We know, Lord, that this is all unfolding according to your great plan and purpose. And we know, Lord, that you have provided us and you continue to provide us that which we need in order to get through. So, Father, we pray that you just bless us today. We pray, Lord, that this word be uh, just, I pray that it resonate in someone's heart and that it is able to help them as they face these difficult times. Please, Lord, bless this word. Pray this in your name, for your glory, and in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. Okay. Um, if you have your Bible, please open it to the 12th chapter of the book of Acts. Twelfth chapter of the book of Acts. You can read along with me. I hear pages turning. Now about that time, 
Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him the four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his wrists, off his hands. Then the angel said to him, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them on its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer when she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so, and they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But now motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Now, to start, let me give you a little bit of context, okay? See, this event takes place uh, during a time when the church was experiencing persecution, Right, King Herod had found it politically expedient uh, to gain favor with the Jewish leaders. And by persecuting the followers of Christ, he could encourage the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish leadership, to influence the Jewish population to be loyal and obedient to the Roman government. See, Caesar had expected that Herod, or Caesar expected Herod to rule uh, his people with just a, a minimum of drama and pleasing the Jews and destroying this new upstart movement made good sense so that he could preserve the peace. And James, we read that James, the brother of John, had been killed, and it seemed very, very likely that Peter was next. And I want you to recognize some things here. I want you to recognize you know, that Peter, he wasn't just in like the holding cell at the local police department. He wasn't in, in the county lockup. You know, Barney Fife with his one bullet in his pocket was not the guy who was guarding him. You know? uh, he, he, wasn't, he, was, he wasn't in some Martha Stewart country club type prison. I mean, Peter was in the hole. He was in the level five secure housing unit. 
And there were multiple guard stations between him and freedom. And he was actually guarded by four squads of four soldiers, 16 soldiers that were tasked to guard him. And they weren't just posted outside of his cell. You know, they, uh, I mean, he might have actually had preferred to be in solitary confinement because he was physically chained to his guards. Escape was not likely. Would you agree with me? Escape was not likely. And friends, that was Peter's circumstances. So now that we have this, uh, uh, we've explored Peter's circumstances, let me just draw your attention to what Peter was doing. Verse 6 reveals a truly astounding picture. You know, Peter is imprisoned, and he is, he's, he's waiting execution by the sword. He is either going to be stabbed through the heart, or he's going to have his head separated from his body. Should, and should Herod's plans be carried out, and given what we know about James' fates a few days earlier, um, Peter had no rational reason, no reason to doubt that Herod's plan would be carried out. Peter would soon be dead. He'd be dead. I mean, and it wasn't like he was going to have a chance to say goodbye to, to, you know, to say a farewell to his loved ones. He, you know, there's not going to be any last toast at the bar with his fishing mates. There's going to be none of that. Peter was waiting for a painful and lonely death. And what does scripture reveal about how Peter was facing his last hours? He's sleeping. He's sleeping. I mean, he's in a miserable, cold, damp jail cell, and he's physically chained to his jailers, and he is sleeping. Isn't that amazing? I mean, put yourself in his sandals. You're in a dark, nasty prison. You're handcuffed to your jailers, who are probably not being nice to you. Your coworker was horribly executed a few days before for the same offense. What would you be doing? Or consider this. How could Peter be so calm? as to face his last hour sleeping. Where was his anxiety? Now, I want to suggest an answer, and I want to go through this. I want to tread this ground carefully. But you see, I'm certain that Peter, uh, although Peter was a simple and relatively uneducated fisherman, that he absolutely, passionately knew God. And I don't just mean knew of God. I mean he knew God. Okay, um, I, 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 you know, there's nothing in the scripture to suggest that he was particularly literate, that he was a great reader of the times. But he grew up in the temple of the Lord. Um, he heard God's word proclaimed to him. And before meeting Jew Jesus, he was, and, and even after he met Jesus, he was an observant Jew who was, as was the practice of that day, he likely memorized scripture. You know, he understood these fundamental truths about who God was, like the ones that we read in Psalm 116, okay? And Psalm 116, though particularly perhaps uh, applicable to Peter's circumstances, is just one of many psalms in which Peter could have found comfort during his imprisonment. And I want you to add to that, okay? He has this knowledge of the scriptures that he grew up with. But Peter knew something else. You see, Peter uh, walked with Jesus. Um, he watched Jesus fulfill scripture during his three years of ministry on earth. He witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And because of his faith, Peter had this in-depth, foundational understanding that God is sovereign. He knew that even though he, even though Peter was uncertain about what the next minute held, that God wasn't. 
You know, God knew what was coming next, and Peter knew that there had never been an occurrence that caught God by surprise. Let me ask you something, friends. Do you believe that? I hope so. Do you realize that even in our darkest moments, when we stand on the precipice of disaster, wondering what will happen next, that God knows? I mean, never in all of history has anything occurred that left God sitting on his throne saying, whew, didn't see that one coming. That's never happened. And it's never happened because while we may be confined to this moment in time, God isn't. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows that. And Peter had reason to trust God, even in these dire circumstances in which he found himself. Let's just turn back to one six, uh, Psalm 116 to see what Peter might have, uh, uh, Peter knew about this God. And I want you to imagine yourself in Peter's circumstances, in, in, in your misery, rather than wallow in self-pity, you turn to Scripture. You pray your way through Psalm 116. And I'm going to tell you something, brothers and sisters, if you don't know this, what, no matter what you are going through in life, if you turn to the Psalms, you can find somebody who has experienced that before. You can find the Psalm that you can pray through knowing that somebody else has tread that same ground and somebody else has prayed to God. Um, so we're going to make an assumption here that Peter, who had Scripture locked in his head, was praying the Psalms, and maybe he prayed Psalm 116. Maybe Peter's thoughts went like this. Let's turn to verse 1. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. You see, Peter knew that his prayers were not in vain. He knew with certainty that God was present, and he knew that he was not abandoned or forsaken. He knew he could rest because God had not forgotten him. Let's look at verse 3. The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of shell laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Now, for those of you who don't know, Shaul is the uh, Hebrew for the place of darkness to which the dead go. But like the psalmist, Peter knew that he was in dire need. And like the psalmist, he knew that God heard his prayers and was able to deliver him. Let's go to verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. I especially love this next verse. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Wow. Did you hear that? Return to the rest, your rest, O my soul. What could be more effective in restoring rest to a humble and tormented soul than knowing that God heard your prayers? See, Peter knew uh, God had his eyes on him, even in his miserable circumstances. Verse 8, you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. And I want you to notice, again, you know, that, that, that Peter here is reciting another uh, um, incredible life and death struggle. That's what this psalm is. You know, Peter didn't write this, right? Um, the, the likely author to the psalm is King David. And, you know, but Peter could claim his, his rescue before it occurred 
because he knew God and he knew that God loved him. And he knew even though he was stuck in the Roman justice system, as unjust as it was, that his fate was still in God's hands. He knew that King Herod was nothing more than God's tool. He could do nothing that was opposed to God's will and plan. Peter was convinced of that. Let's go to verse 13. I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord, and I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Can you picture this? Can you picture Peter testifying to his jailers of God's greatness and the sufficiency of this cup of salvation? I mean, I can see Peter defiantly saying to his captors, you know what, guys, go ahead. Stab me if you must, but God's going to be glorified. You know, in my mind, I can picture Peter smiling and maybe even softly singing that, uh, that old gospel hymn. You know, have you ever heard this hymn? I'm on my way to heaven, I shall not be moved. Like a tree planted by the water, I shall not be I can picture Peter. He's worshiping, even in these miserable circumstances. I can picture him testifying to his jailers concerning God's greatness. Let's go down to uh, uh, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. Now that one's kind of funny too because you see, picture that. Peter is actually chained to his guards and he could be testifying that you have loosed my bonds. And imagine though what happened as we, as we read in, in the scripture. Imagine what must have gone through the minds of Peter and his jailers when those bonds actually fell off of them. Whoa. Verse 17, I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Would you agree with me that these are confident and powerful words for a man who is imprisoned and waiting execution? Would you find comfort in praying this psalm if you were in that prison? Now, I want to be real clear. You know, Acts 12 does not specifically say that Peter prayed Psalm 116. I need to be really clear on that, okay? But it clearly describes a man who, in the most dire circumstances, rested. You see, Peter knew God, and even awaiting execution, even while suffering in prison, he could worship God, and he could trust in God's love. He understood that his fate was in God's hands. And Peter not only rested as he anticipated his execution, but I am certain that he worshiped God in the presence of his captors. He realized that as Paul would later write to the Roman church, we know that all things work together for for the good of those who love God to to those who are called according to his purpose. He, He knew with certainty that God was in control at this moment. He was so certain, he was so certain that Peter knew that even if he died because of God's great plan and God's great love, that Peter would be fine. Peter was saved whether he was spared execution or not. Do you realize that? He was ready to face eternity if that was God's great plan. And I believe that he thought that his pending execution was God's plan. So Peter slapped. He slapped. Friends, 
I pray that should I ever find myself in that situation in which death seems into, imminent, that I can rest as Peter did, secure in his faith and God's sovereignty and God's faithful love. And I pray that each of you also has that level of faith in God's love and sovereignty. Now, if this whole drama that we're looking at, if this were a play, at this moment in the scripture, the house lights would dim so that the scene could change, okay? And now the scripture takes us to another scene, and we see events that are occurring at the same time during which Peter was languishing in prison. And then the house lights rise, and the scene changes. We find ourselves in the early church. And it's interesting to see what the church was doing while Peter was incarcerated. The church was doing all that they could do, everything that they could do to win Peter's release. Do you realize that? I mean, to be sure, they weren't petitioning the governor for clemency or, or protesting in the public square, carrying signs and banners demanding justice for Peter. Uh, they certainly did not riot in downtown in, in the downtown area and throw bricks through storefront windows as, as we do today for some odd reason. Um, I guess the concept of a mostly peaceful protest involving burning down city blocks had not yet been invented. Um, they didn't even develop a plan to break Peter out of prison, as in some classic Clint Eastwood flick. You know, Scripture tells us that this is what the church was doing. In verse 5, Scripture tells us that the church was earnestly praying. And friends, this is my second point of application. You see, Peter was part of this community called the church. And while Peter was going through his trials, the church was gathered together praying for him. And as we're going to see just a little bit later, they were not particularly optimistic that Peter would be spared public execution. But they prayed nonetheless. And here's the takeaway. Friends, when you are struggling with whatever circumstances you face, you should have someone praying for you. You see, God hears the prayers of his people. Friends, there is power in prayer. You know, think about this. We pray for our loved ones in this assembly every Sunday morning because we know that God hears our prayers and that he is glorified. He is glorified when we come before him, when we recognize that he is present and when we recognize that he is able Okay, so scene changes again. The house lights dim, and as they rise again, we find ourselves back in the prison. And let's just shift our attention to what God was doing in this account, okay? You know, God hears the prayers of Peter in the gathered church. And what does he do? He sends an angel to free Peter from his impossible situation. And notice how the angel achieves Peter's freedom. You know, the angel doesn't just like quietly slip in under the cover of darkness like some, some ninja warrior. He doesn't free Peter and, and leave before anyone notices, you know, as if that might have been possible given, again, that he was chained to his uh, uh, guards. But verse 7 of the NIV tells us this. It says, suddenly there was a bright light. You know, you picture, I picture a heavenly flashbang grenade, you know, and it rocks the prison. And it seems obvious that everyone in the prison was stunned. But wait, it gets even more amazing than that. Uh, um, it gets better. Peter's shackles miraculously fall off of him, right? 
Um, the guards are stunned and incapacitated. And then the gates of the supermax prison fly open. Can you picture this? I mean, this is cool stuff. This is supernatural stuff. This is a seagull landing on the head of Eddie Rickenbacker just before he succumbs to starvation. This is a miracle cure when the doctors have removed life support. This is a moment where you say, this must be God, because there is no other explanation. But I need to point out something else that is going here, and this is really important. In verse 7, you know, after the miraculous and heavenly flashbangs, something really strange transpires. Scripture tells us that the angel struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. Then in verse 8 we read, The angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. Does anyone else see how strange this is? I mean, you know, let, let, let's just kind of you know, regroup here for a second. The church, you know, the church can do nothing more than, than pray. You know, they can't break them out. They can't appeal to the governor for clemency. And Peter is locked deep within the prison, and he's physically chained to his guards. And it takes this miraculous Rambo-like angelic presence to release him from his jailers, right? And now Rambo the angel kicks Peter on the side and says, get dressed and follow me. I mean, why didn't the angel just miraculously transport Peter to some, you know, some beachside resort, you know? I mean, how cool would it have been if, if, if Rambo the angel had done the flashbang thing, and then, and then when Peter came to, he was poolside, you know? He uh, uh, had one of those tropical drinks with the little umbrella in it, and, you know, and his feet are dangling in the pool. He's wearing his Ray-Bans, and, you know... I mean, here's the question, folks. Why did the angel require that Peter get up, get dressed, and follow? Why, why, why is that there? And I think, friends, that this is perhaps one of the most important takeaways of the scripture. And I want to encourage you to remember this and apply this principle to, to the challenges that you will face throughout your life. Understand this. God is a God of miracles. And when one of his precious children, that's you and me, if you know God, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when one of his precious children calls out to him prayer, the Bible tells us that God hears him, right? And I want to be sure, again, you know, to, to, to be sure God is not obligated to respond in accordance with our prayers. I mean, I can pray all day for a rainbow-striped unicorn that snorts out, you know, uh, uh, that exhales sprinkles with every breath. But if it's not in accordance with God's prayer, I'm not going to get it, right? But God's great plan. Rest assured that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that you have a loving, eternal Father who hears your prayers. And, and, and here's the thing, though. If you are in need of a miracle, and if you are praying for a miracle, you must first do all that you can do. Okay, You have to do your part. You have a part. You have to do all that you can do. You can't just sit around expecting God to take care of everything. So if you're unemployed or if you're underemployed and struggling to put food on your table, you must work or, or at least you must seek work. You know, um, uh, To be certain, you should pray that God will lead you to your next employment opportunity. You should pray for favor in the eyes of the human resources decision makers. But you must do your part, too. You know, you must seek to develop skills um, or develop an impactful resume. You must dress appropriately for your interview. Friends, here's the point. The angel kicked Peter in the side and told him to get dressed and follow because Peter could do that. 
He could do that. In fact, I would suggest to you that until he was released from his shackles, not until he was released from his shackles, getting dressed and following the angel was, was the limit of what Peter can do. Can you see that? So here's the point. When you find yourself pressed beyond what you can achieve, here's what you should do. First, you should make sure that there are people praying for you. You should pray yourself because we know that God hears our prayers. And second, you should do all that you can to bring about the desired result. You must do your part. You can't just sit around waiting for God to show up. Now, I want to close with just one more really cool observation here, and I want you to turn to verse 12 with me. So when he, that's Peter, had considered this, that he was actually free, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. And where many were gathered together praying, and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran and announced that Peter stood before the gate, but they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. So here's what we read. We read that after the angel left him and that Peter realized that he was free, that he went to the home of Mary where the church was gathering. And the most peculiar thing occurred there. He knocked on the door, right? The servant girl, Rhoda, you know, she looks through the people, she hears his voice, and she knows that it's Peter, right? She knows, though, that Peter is in prison and waiting to be executed. She certainly knows that the church is gathered in the next room and is praying for his release. But now she looks out, and inexplicably, inexplicably there he is. And it's funny what she doesn't do. I mean, she doesn't welcome him in and offer him a cold beer or something, you know. She, she, she doesn't shout, hallelujah, God has answered our prayers and embrace him. You know, she doesn't even say that it's about time that God answered our prayers and, you know, as if he, 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 he were obligated to do what we pray. She is so excited. She is so overwhelmed by his presence that she leaves this escaped prisoner on the doorstep and runs to the room where everyone is gathered, and she says, Peter's outside on the landing. And this is almost as funny. The church that is gathered and praying for his release says to her, he can't be out there on the landing. He's in prison. He's about to be executed. Isn't that funny? Isn't that odd? And, I mean, isn't it ironic that the church was earnestly praying for Peter's release, but obviously did not believe that God would actually act? Does that encourage anyone here? It should. I mean, do you realize that even the early church, even those who walked with Jesus and watched him perform miracles, even those who watched him die on the cross and then were witness to the empty tomb three days later, even those who broke bread with him during the 40 days before his ascension, even they sometimes prayed to God while they harbored some doubt that God would actually answer their prayers. Now, I don't know about you, but they sound kind of like me when I sometimes pray. I mean, I sometimes offer up my prayers doubting that God will respond. But you know what? I pray anyway. And that's what's going on here in the early church. They prayed anyway. 
And God heard their prayers. And God answered their prayers. So allow me to end with this. If you want to persevere when facing extraordinary circumstances, you must be certain of who you are in relation to God, the creator of all things. In other words, friends, you must be secure in your salvation now before the ship you're sailing in hits the rocks and begins to sink. Okay? You, you must know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You must recognize that, you know what? He does have your back, and he has, and even the best and in the worst of circumstances, you must recognize that God has a plan. And even if you do not see how that plan will unfold, that God does. And somehow, though it may not work out as, as you would have it work out if you were God, it is a good plan. And then when you're in that situation where you know that you can do no more to achieve the desired outcome, here's what you must do. You must pray. You pray. You, you have others Pray with you. You have others pray for you. And then do all that you can possibly do to bring about that outcome. Do your part. Do your part expecting and recognizing that God can do the miraculous part. And trust that God hears your prayers. Know that God is still in the miracle business. He is with you always. And he is able to do the impossible. But let me speak for a moment to those of you here today who, who may not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. What crisis are you in at this moment? You know, I can remember back to, to the days before I knew Jesus. And, and, you know, I thought that I had my life together. I, I believed that I was self-made, that I had pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. That's a really interesting phrase, isn't it? Um, I recall those times, though, when I was in crisis and I vividly remember, for example, the early days of my career before I knew Jesus, uh, I can vividly remember being challenged by either a problem that I faced or someone who disagreed with the solution that I had proposed. And, and you know, maybe I had made some decision in which I was certain and I had been proved wrong and now there were consequences to pay. And I remember that when I came to the end of myself, when there was nothing more that I could do so that I could save myself, I remember you know, acting like a feral cat cornered in an alley, hissing, clawing, fighting as if my very life depended on it. You know, I tried everything I could to save myself, and now it was time for claws and fury. Unbeliever, have you ever felt that way? Do you feel that way now? Friend, it may be time for you to give up the illusion of being in control of your life. Surrender. Make today the day that you ask Jesus to take control. You can trust him. He died for you. He hung on the cross and he bled for you so that you could be assured of the love of God in heaven. Embrace his great, although perhaps obscure, plan for your life. Lay down your agenda. You don't have to fight your way through every day. You can rest in Christ knowing that he will never forsake you. He has a plan for you, and it is good. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have a plan for us. We thank you, Lord, that even in the most desperate of situations that you are there, we thank you, Lord, for this church, this body of believers who, who will pray with us and for us, when we're in crisis. 
And we thank you, Lord, that you have not left us without your guidance. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can turn to it. We can pray the prayers that others have prayed before us. Father, I ask for you to bless us. I pray, Lord, for you to help those who are in crisis today. I pray, Lord, that you comfort them. And Father, for those who are here who may not know you, I pray, Lord, that you break through their resistance, that you just become real to them. I pray that there be no one in this congregation who doesn't come to know you and love you. We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings of our life. Father, I ask for you to bless us as we leave this place today, that you give us a boldness to go out and proclaim your word. And I pray for your protection. I pray all of this in your name and for your glory. In the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.